Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning, saints. If you are visiting us for the first time, you're very welcome. You are visiting us in the midst of a mini-series in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So let me ask you us all to turn there. This morning, where we will pick up where we left off last week. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, this week, we are in uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. Last week, we looked at verses 13 and 14. Let me read from verse 13 for the benefit of context. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved uh, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. For what reason do people do the same thing over and over again. What reason do people do that? Why is it there are certain things that we do the same every time we do them? It has been said uh, that the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again, but that is if you're looking for different results, right? That's if if you're looking for a different result and you do the same thing over and over again, it's been said that that's insanity. But are there legitimate reasons why someone would devote themselves to doing exactly the same thing in the way that they've always done it without any kind of deviation? Consider, for example, changing a light bulb. Now, do you really need a new way of changing a light bulb? Do you honestly need a new way? You, you probably don't. You, you need to buy a new light bulb, uh, switch off the light, remove the old bulb and put in a new one. It's a very straightforward process. Why would you need a new way to do it? Unless maybe there's a robot in the future that does it for you. So in this case, one could say that the reason you do the same thing over and over again is because what you are doing has not been improved upon and the truth by which you're doing it has not changed. It still works. How about swimming? How about when you, you, you go into the water to swim. We've just come from summer. 
Uh, maybe many of us went to the coast and you have to swim. The process of swimming is generally straightforward, though not as easy for some as it is for others. Um, but it's generally straightforward. Uh, the, 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 the general principles of swimming and the movement of arms and legs is pretty set. So whenever you swim, you do it the same all the time. You, you, you learn swimming and then you keep doing that. Maybe you get better and better, but you're pretty much doing the same things. There are clearly things in which we do the same over and over again, and the general reason, one way or another, of not changing those things is because nothing has changed that necessitates how we do that thing. In our text this morning, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica that because of the fundamental truths that he has just reminded them of from, from verse 1 of chapter 2, there is absolutely no reason to divert in any direction what they were doing. There is no reason to change anything. Remember, we saw last week that the church had been unsettled, they'd been shaken, alarmed, because there were reports that have come saying that the resurrection had already occurred. Remember, we saw that last week. And if the resurrection, of course, has occurred, then obviously things have changed significantly, and how we live, if we live, is different. But as we saw last week, Paul showed that the resurrection has not occurred. And because the resurrection has not occurred, the gospel message is still exactly the same. And you remember we saw that he reminded them that they have salvation, that they have salvation in Christ, that they should not be alarmed, that they will indeed enter into the glory of Jesus Christ. Their entrance into the glory of Christ is set. It will never be thwarted because they have been chosen by God in love for it. We saw this last week. And so in light of that reality, he then tells them this, verse 15. So then, as a result then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Because nothing has changed, because the gospel is still the same, because you do indeed have salvation, do what it is that you've been doing, and continue in what we told you to do when we told you to do it. Paul wants this church to stand firm, to hold tightly to these traditions. I want us to consider this verse this morning under two straightforward headings, two headings. What are these traditions that he speaks of? Heading number one, what are these traditions that he speaks of? And second, what is it to stand firm and hold fast to them? What are these traditions and what does it look like to stand firm. In other words, what is it that he is calling them to do? First, let's consider this question. What are these traditions that are, that are necessary for the Thessalonians to continue in? Uh, the word that is translated in English here, traditions, is, is actually accurately translated. It's the, the English word tradition is the best translation of this Greek term here. This word has the understanding of things that have been handed down by some source to another group that is supposed to continue on with that, with that thing. 
And so what is happening here is that the apostles are the ones that have handed down these traditions to the church, and the church has to continue in them. Where the word tradition fails, where the English word traditions fails in rendering the meaning of this, is that traditions, at least the way that we think about them in, in Johannesburg in 2024, traditions are things that you can pick and choose. You, you can choose to do them or not. If you're, for example, having a wedding, you can choose to say, okay, we'll do this tradition. I don't like this tradition. We won't do this. We'll do this. You can kind of pick and choose. It's, un it's kind of optional. At least that's how people feel about it in the modern era. But that's not the meaning of this term. This term here is not just traditions. This term implies commandments, that these are actually commands. Look at chapter 3 uh, and verse 4. Just toss your eyes to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 4 and see this. Look at what he says. Well, let's start in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do, notice what he says, the things that we command. So in other words, these traditions are traditions in the sense that they've been handed down by the apostles, but they are commandments in the sense that you do not have a choice of whether or not to do them. You have to do them if you are to be a faithful Christian. I want you to notice in the first place that these traditions, these commandments, have a direct connection with the truths that he has just said in verses 13 and 14. You see how he starts the sentence? So then, brothers, hold, stand firm and hold fast to these traditions. In other words, these traditions that we ought to stand firm in are necessitated by the truths of the gospel. These traditions come as a result of the fact that the gospel has appeared. And that gospel is that we, we have been loved by God, chosen by him to enter into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the truths of the gospel, these traditions, these commandments are useless. They have no basis. But because the gospel is true, they have a basis. It is necessary to begin here, friends. The gospel being true means that the way we as a church live and you as an individual live matters. Notice he doesn't say, well, since you are beloved by God, since you have been chosen to enter into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, relax and enjoy yourself. Relax and do what it is that feels, that it feels good and right to you. Just do whatever you feel like. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because the gospel has come, ease off. No, he says, because the gospel has come, follow in these traditions. Do these traditions. Hold fast to these traditions. The gospel truths form part of the foundation by which your life will be tested if you call yourself a Christian. The way people in Johannesburg love saying things like, well, God loves me and he forgives, he doesn't judge me. That kind of thinking that is so pervasive when you talk to the people on the street, well, God loves and he forgives it, so, I mean, he, he's going to look over this, is a betrayal of the gospel. That kind of attitude is a betrayal 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is not true, then by all means, go ahead, live however you want. If the gospel is not true, do whatever you please. Doesn't matter, nothing matters. Paul, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection did not occur, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. But since the gospel is true, then you, as an adherent of the gospel, you as one who calls yourself a Christian, you must live in a manner that appreciates the depth of glory that the gospel has brought. The way that you live must not betray the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God can judge me. No. The church has to judge you because of the gospel. It's what the, Bible, it's what the gospel teaches. Throughout the scriptures, the gospel teaches that the church must judge you because the gospel has appeared. And in fact, if the church judges you are right, they are executing God's judgment. Listen to how Paul puts it in Titus 2, verse 11. If you're not convinced by what I'm saying, Titus 2, verse 11 should put this to bed. Listen to how Paul puts it. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all manner of people, training us in order that, denying impiety and worldly desires, we may live self-controlled and righteously and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? The gospel, the grace of God has appeared, has been revealed in Christ, in the gospel, and because it has appeared, it trains us. In other words, if the gospel had not been appeared, we would not be trained. But because the gospel has appeared, then we are trained, and so we ought to live in light in response to that training, to live godly, self-denying, pure, self-controlled lives. Are you following me? Why should we aim to live holy lives? Because Jesus Christ has appeared and died for us. Why should we live a life of forgiveness? Because we have been forgiven. Why should we live a life of saying, just because I want it and desire it deeply doesn't mean that I have the right to do it? Why should we live a life of doing that? Of denying ourselves our inmost desires? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, even though at Gethsemane he prayed for another solution. That is why you ought to deny yourself. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's right. That's what the gospel teaches us and trains us. I want to state right here, friends, that anyone who refuses to hold to these traditions of the apostles either has not tasted of the grace that has appeared or is immature. There's only two options. If you do not want to live by the traditions of the apostles, the commandments of the apostles, you have not tasted of the grace that has appeared, that trains us for godliness, or you are badly taught and immature. If you're in here and expect that the gospel is an all-out excuse for you to perpetually ask to not be judged, you are either not a Christian or you have been taught lies that will destroy you by the means of your flesh. And as a minister of this gospel, I would have everyone here be very clear 
that the gospel does indeed say, come as you are, but you will have to change. You will have to repent. Come as you are and repent. Come as you are acknowledging that the way that you are is wrong and it needs to change because the gospel has arrived. Your sins can be forgiven. You come footstools, but you have to come knowing that the grace of the Lord is going to change you and you can't just agree with your old self. And you can't expect others to agree with your old self. Your old self, Paul says, must be crucified and killed because your old self is dying. The Lord Jesus said, if you're not willing to repent and change, he said it very clearly, you are not worthy to be his disciple. He says this in Luke. He says, if a man is not willing to carry his cross daily, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Another thing to note here is this, as we're trying to understand what these traditions are. We've said that these traditions are commandments. We've said that these traditions are based on the truth of the gospel. They follow from the truth of the gospel. Another thing then to note regarding these traditions, the fact that these traditions are predicated on the gospel means that they are gospel traditions and not any other kind of tradition. There are all kinds of traditions, right? There are initiations at school. That's a tradition. There are family traditions. There are cultural traditions, work traditions, etc. Paul here is not talking about any particular tradition that he and his friends like. He is talking about gospel traditions, traditions that are necessary in light of the gospel and the hope of eternal life. If we were to give a definition to these traditions, we could say this. These traditions that Paul has in mind is the ways in which we are to conduct ourselves in light of the gospel. Within that definition, there are two clear categories. How we are to conduct ourselves as a congregation and how you are to conduct yourself as an individual. Okay? The gospel appears, and because the gospel appears, it says here are traditions that you need to follow. So then there are traditions that you need to follow individually, but then there are also traditions that we have to follow together as a gathered group of saints. When we are a church, we need to, fall, we need to act in this particular way because the gospel has appeared. I want us to consider this. I really want to just unpack this a bit more. So I want us to consider these two categories. First, let us consider together the traditions that have been handed down for the churches. What is it that we ought to do? If you were asked the question, how are churches supposed to behave? What would you say? How are, how are churches supposed to behave? What is the person on the street thinking that the church, what is the church, what is the church supposed to do? How is the church supposed to behave? What is it supposed to be doing in this time? When there's things happening around it, there's things happening in our community, what is it that the church is supposed to do? Where is the manual that determine what a church does? How can a church know that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing 
For example, when they gather together, when we come together here, and we do all the things that we're doing when we come together, how do we know that we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing? In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2, Paul says this, Now, I praise you that you remember me in all things, and just as I handed over you, over to you the traditions, you, collective, hold fast to them. In chapter 14 of, of that same book, Paul says this, As in all the churches of the saints, these, this is how things are to be done. There are many such things where we see throughout the writings of the apostles that this is how churches are to behave. But there is no better book than 1 Timothy to survey with regards to what we are to do when we are gathered together as a congregation. So I want us to do this exercise. I want you, you and I this morning to do a little exercise and look through the traditions that have been given to us to do when we gather together. Come with me to 1 Timothy. And we're just going to do a, a survey of this book. We're just going to hit passages. Because this book, Paul tells us that he wrote it to Timothy so that one should know how they ought to behave in the household of the Lord. So if we want to know how we ought to do things in the household of the Lord when we're together, we should go to 1 Timothy as the first port of call. And the first thing I want to point your attention to is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He tells Timothy, Paul here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he tells Timothy what the aim of the instruction, the charge of the apostles is. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction or the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith without hypocrisy from which some have deviated and have turned away into fruitless discussion. Okay, let's unpack this. Why do we come together as a church? He's saying here that the content of the preaching that we come together to hear should not deviate from this that the people of God must be instructed to show love that comes from a pure heart without hypocrisy. Did you see that? What is the aim? What is it that when you come to hear the sermon, what is it that the sermon is trying to get out of you? What is the sermon on Sunday trying to extract from you, get you to do? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith without hypocrisy not fruitless and vain discussion. Why do we come together? We do not come together so that we may be motivated. We don't come together so that we might be tickled and excited. But the converse is also true. We don't come together so that we might be harshly shot down and made to feel dirty and guilty, guilty and useless. Nor do we come together to hear an innovative TED Talk. Right? We come together, listen to me, we come together to have our love for Christ stirred up 
so that we may live lives of love to God and love to our fellow man with a pure heart and a good conscience and a true faith in Jesus Christ without hypocrisy. That's what we're here to hear. That's, that's, that's the sum total of the instruction. The teaching ministry of a, of a healthy local church should only be that, to stir up love within you to Christ so that you might love him, love your fellow man, and have a pure conscience, a, 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 a clean conscience, and have no hypocrisy, and continue in faith to God. That's, that's why we come. Okay? That's a tradition. And there are some who deviate from this tradition, as Paul says. There are some who, 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 who wander from this tradition that is handed down by the apostle, and they, they turn away to fruitless discussion. Look with me in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, he commands that prayers be made for all kinds of people, including government officials. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, I urge, of, first of all, that petitions, prayers, requests, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people, on behalf of kings and all those who are in authority, in order that we might live tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, that we might live, that we might have peace. This is good and acceptable before God our Savior, who desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is a tradition that Paul is laying down. One gentleman, a couple years ago, came to visit the church with his family. And then I had him over for, for lunch afterwards. And then he, he was very perturbed. He asked me that Sunday, that, that after church, that Sunday morning, he asked me, why did we pray for this minister, this particular minister that we prayed for? I can't remember who the minister is. Why did you pray for this minister? And so I proceeded to show him this text and said that we are doing what we are commanded to do. He thought that we prayed for that minister because we are somehow as a church promoting a political party and we're, 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 we're trying to get into the psyche of the people. He thought we were doing some high-level inception, some, just some serious uh, you know, kind of, uh, of suggestion here. Vote for this party. We're going to pray for these. He, that's what he thought. And I tried, and I tried to try very hard. No, 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 no. If you come next week, and you come the next week, you'll see that we just we're just praying for all the executive. We're praying for the president. We're just praying because we are commanded to, and it has nothing really to do with us or how we feel about it. It has everything to do with the fact that we have been commanded to do it. I don't think I want him over because he never came to church after that. Uh, he came to visit once, was not happy, I believe, with my answer, and he never returned. But I hope you notice that the, the reason that is given for this particular tradition here. What is the reason that we are told to pray for all kinds of government officials? Look at verse 3. This is good and acceptable before God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is the reason of this command? The gospel. These are gospel traditions. The moment you stop praying for certain people, you are no longer living in light of the gospel. 
The moment there are certain people, because you are so perturbed with them, you're so annoyed with them, that you just can never pray for them, you are no longer living in light of what the gospel demands you to. Was it not the captain of our salvation who said, pray even for your enemies? Not pray that their car might get, you know, uh, the, 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 you know the, the, some pistons in there might break. or No, pray for them. In the context that he was saying that, he was saying pray positive for them. So when you forget the gospel, check your prayers. Have I forgotten the gospel? Because who am I praying for? And is, how, is, is the fact that I'm praying for them determined by the fact of how I feel about them? Or is it determined by the fact that I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? In, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 2, this is a heavy one, but it is also a tradition handed down by the apostles. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. So if you're here, you might, if you're here, you've been with us for a while, you might wonder why is it in a church where we're so blessed with such gifted and wise women, why are not any of them preaching and teaching here in front of the gathered body? And the answer is staring you right there in verse 12. The tradition of the church, because of God's design, handed down to us by the apostles, is that women are not to preach and teach in front of the gathered congregation. And he explains why it is part of God's design of male leadership. Again, this tradition of the church has nothing to do with any changing circumstances, but it has everything to do with the fact that it was given by the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles, and so that is why we will stick to it. If you have questions about that, come to me after, or you can listen to the sermon we did on this particular subject uh, on the church on the website. In chapter 3, he details for us the, office of el the offices of elder and deacon, which we have spoken about at length in recent times. And then in chapter 4, he tells us that we ought to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. Why is it that there's a, there is a, a specific ministry when we are gathered together of people reading the Scripture? Why is it? It's because of this command. We have to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. In chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, he details for us what we as a church are to do with church finances. So we're not free to just do whatever we feel like with the church finances. He tells us in 1 Timothy 5, this is what you do with church finances. These are the kinds of widows that you are to enroll after these kinds of checks have been made. The deacons have their manual of how they work with our finances as a church in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And other passages, of course, like in the book of Acts and in, in 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 8 and 9, etc. But this is, this is the first port of call. This is what we are to do in the church. It discusses, uh, uh, even to the extent of what pastors are to be paid, he discusses that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He explains how an accusation against an elder in the church is to be handled. What I'm trying to show you, friends, by giving you this short survey is that the church has a way to conduct itself 
that is clearly defined and nothing has changed, the Thessalonians must do what the apostles have said. And we must do what the apostles have said. We're not inventing anything new here. No season in our church's life should alter what we do. We ought to always be doing and holding fast to that which was once and for all delivered by the apostles. See, friends, many people talk about what they want from a church. I want a church like this, where the music is like that, or where there's this kind of ministry. I want a church like that. But in many ways, nobody should care what you want from a church. What matters is what does God want from a church? What is it that God wants from a church? That's what matters, and that's what the church should do. And praise God that he has not left us to, to guess. He has told us exactly what he wants from a church. He has told us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, that when outsiders or unbelievers come in, they must, have an under, they must be able to understand what is being done when we're here together. See, that's why right now I'm not preaching in Zulu because only a few of you would understand me, right? And that's why also I'm not preaching in gibberish, because everybody who comes in must be able to understand what is being done. God tells us. So I would encourage us all as, a, as an application point of Paul's commandment. I would encourage us all to ensure that what we want from the church aligns with what God wants from a church. What we desire to be done in the congregation that we're in aligns with the traditions that Paul says we must hold fast to. Are you with me? To investigate, why do I miss this? Why is it that I want it this way? Why is it that I enjoyed it this? Is it really right? Just because I enjoy it, is it the right thing that must be done? You with me? But it's not just traditions relating to how we conduct ourselves when we are together as a congregation. There are also traditions regarding how we ought to conduct ourselves individually as believers. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. So we're just jumping ahead of our text. Come back to our text and go to chapter 3 and verse 6 and, and hear what he says, what Paul says there. Look at what Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk, live in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The apostles heard that some among the saints at Thessalonica do not want to work. Now you might wonder, why would anybody not want to work? Well, there's, we're not really clear. Uh, there is no big tradition of people not wanting to work in Thessalonica from what I could gather. It is possible that it's because they thought that the resurrection has occurred, and so what's the point of working? But we're not really sure why. And so Paul comes here and corrects that and says, no, that's not the tradition that we gave you. The tradition that we gave you is that every able-bodied person should work and eat from their work. These men, these people that are here in Thessalonica are not busy at work, but he says they are busy bodies. So they're not, they're not busy where they should be. They're busy bodies in general. They're talking about this and that, involving themselves usually. When somebody's a busy body, they're usually involving themselves in controversies that have nothing to do with them. They are here and there. But the traditions of the apostles are that people who are able-bodied must work. To such a degree, they said that if a person is not willing to work, he is not eligible to eat. This is serious. Have you thought about Just think about that commandment. The apostles gave the Thessalonians this command. If somebody does not want to roll up their sieves and do work, that person should not eat. This is a serious commandment. Among the people of God, laziness in all of its forms is not to be tolerated. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been revealed. And notice how this laziness shows itself. It's being in busybody. What are you doing? I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm here, I'm there. But you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is earning a living. And so, they are, so the tradition of the church is that we're not going to feed you. No, but you guys are, look at you, you guys are all well here. Look at the cars that are outside. Nothing to do with the cars that are outside. You're not willing to work. So we're not going to feed you. Be hungry, and those hunger pangs are going to remind you that you were designed to work. Sounds harsh, but it's a tradition of the apostles. People must busy themselves. That's what we were designed to do. You're actually destroying yourself if you are not willing to work. If you are, if you are saying, I'm not going to work. I'm not talking about people who are trying to find work. They can't find it. That's a different situation. This is somebody who doesn't want to work. You know, who's just very happy just to be there in the corner waking up at 10 a.m. and going to sleep at 4 p.m. No, that is, that is not a Christian virtue, and that person should be dealt with publicly by the church. Well, this is just one such tradition. There are many such individual traditions throughout the New Testament, all of them regarding personal holiness. It will take an entire reading of the entire scriptures to unpack. But suffice this to say, suffice, let me summarize all the personal traditions that we ought to hold fast and stand firm in. Let me, let me just summarize them this way. Every man, woman, and child in Christ must ensure that they know the word of God and what is it that they, hold, that they are to hold fast to in their station of life. Every man, woman, child in Christ 
must know the word of God and know what it is that God requires of you. And go forth and do it. Not in a legalistic sense, you're earning your salvation. No, you are doing it because of your salvation. You're doing it because Christ has died. And we can say it this way, do not slack on what you know you're supposed to be doing and then use the gospel as an excuse. What is it that you know you're supposed to be doing? Do it. Do it. If you need to repent in a particular era, repent and walk with a clear conscience before the Lord, not with hypocrisy. Uh, I was doing premarital this week, and I, and I said to this couple that when you, when you are saying to God, God, I want to become a husband, or God, I want to become a spouse, what you're doing is you are, you are going to God and saying, God, give me this new set of commandments. I'm now putting, on, putting them onto myself. You see, when you're a single person, there's a, certain command, there's a certain group of commands that don't apply to you. But if you get married, you've just went to God and say, give me all these commands. You've just asked for a whole, a whole new set of commandments. And now that you're a husband or a wife, you live with those commandments and we're going to hold you to those commandments. When you get a job, you see, when you were without a job, there were certain commandments you didn't have. But as soon as you get a job, you've just gone to God and say, I'll take that group of commandments, and you're taking, on to, taking it on to yourself, and now we are going to hold you to it. When you become a father or a mother, it's the same thing. You were nice just, being a, just trying to manage the, the commandments of being a wife or a husband, and then bam! Now there's a whole new set of commandments that you need to deal with. You become a member of the church. Set of commandments. You go on holiday. Set of commandments. Oh, you didn't think that on holiday you had commandments? You do. <laughs> really, you're still a Christian. <laughs> right? In every station of life, in wherever, whatever is happening in life, God requires us to follow a certain set of traditions. And those traditions have been handed to us by the apostles. They can be summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments, and they can even be further summarized in the Lord's summary, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what these traditions are. Now let's come to what it is to hold fast to these traditions. What is it to hold fast to these traditions? Well, if you look at our verse again, chapter 2, verse 15. So then, so then, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The phrase, stand firm, uh, a case could be made that the phrase stand firm is the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase to say to Christians in all kinds of situations. When you go through Paul's letters, you will find him saying, stand firm in all kinds of situations to all manner of people dealing with all kinds of different issues. And he says 
different words around that phrase, that, that, that commandment, that give us a, a clear picture. If we're trying to build, what does it look like to stand firm? Well, let's listen to Paul as I sampled for you some of the places where Paul says stand firm. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Okay, so standing firm in Paul's mind has the idea of being watchful, being careful, being aware, and standing firm, being unmoved, be strong like a night watchman, be like, act like a man. Philippians 1 verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So standing firm here now, with, in Philippians 1, has this idea of working together as a unit, seeking to have the same mind in the gospel and moving forward with that same mind, striving, he says, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't believe another gospel that's going to enslave you. In, in the case of the Galatians, as you know, they, what was coming to them was saying, you have to go back to Judaism. But really, this could be said in, way, in the same way. Stand firm in the gospel, believing that Christ has died, and don't be made a slave to any other system of thinking. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So continue your work. Continue serving. Continue hospitality. Continue sharing the gospel. Abounding always in the work of the gospel, knowing that your work is not in vain. Vain. But it isn't just Paul who likes this phrase. Peter and James also say it. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Talking of the devil, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So when you're facing trials and temptations and tribulations and it's heavy, that does not mean that you have to now deviate from this gospel. Stand firm in the faith. James 5 verse 8, You also be patient, establish your heart, that is, stand firm in your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Always remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning, so you ought to stand firm. 
But if you are looking for a very, that's a bit of a survey, but if you're looking for a, a very simple and memorable line of what it means to stand firm and hold fast to these things, I would say look no further than what, what Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 12. And that is where we will end our time. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. You have the gospel. And so you have an, a hope of entering into the glory of Christ. Be patient in tribulation. Do not, do not be so weak that a tribulation comes and tosses you this way and that way. That any wind of doctrine or any wind of, of trial or testing can toss you this way or that. Stand firm. Be patient. Endure in a time of testing. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Seek and thrive and strive that your prayer life might be like this. Constant. Alive. Living. There is a connectedness, a life with Christ. You are communing with your Lord. Jesus says it in a different way. He says, abide in me. John says it a different way, well, similar to Jesus, in 1 John chapter 2. Constantly abide in him. Do not step away from the Lord Jesus Christ, but constantly be in prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we, as a congregation, would be those who stand firm in the gospel. That we, as a congregation, would be those who stand firm in the truths of the gospel. That we would not forget them, but that they would constantly be in front of our minds and hearts, and that they would dictate how we are living. I pray, Lord, that there would be one mind in this congregation of striving together, that in this congregation there would be one mind of working together for the gospel, that we'd be watchful and deal with temptations, that would strengthen one another when temptations arise, when tribulations arise, when hard times occur. Oh Lord, I pray that this word, where you are encouraging us to hold fast to what you have revealed, but not be taken away by the birds of the air, but it might find root in our hearts, and that we might think, in what ways are we not holding fast to these? And that, Lord, you might produce fruit in our lives 10, 20, 50, 100-fold. In Jesus' name, and because of his work, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we will now end our time together.